Pastor said that tonight I'd be speaking from the book of Proverbs, and that's close. We will uh, we'll be a little bit of every place. We'll start out in the book of Psalms. Actually, I got uh, I got sidetracked, I guess, a little bit in the last the last discussion we had from the book of Proverbs. We dealt with a principle that I want to expand a little bit tonight, and we'll do that from time to time. Actually, this started out to be a sermon on God's will. In fact, if I'd have if I'd have been feeling well last week and have been able to be here, I would have preached a sermon on God's will. Since that, God's changed my mind about what I should do before I go into the other sermon, and I think that there will probably be at least two coming before we get into the one I originally had planned. And so tonight, if you noticed in the bulletin this morning, the title of tonight's sermon is really Confirmation or Transformation. And that idea was taken from the 12th chapter of Romans, where it says, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove that God's will for you is good, acceptable, and perfect. And so that's the theme. I think there are a lot of pressures in today's world that would want to conform us. As Philip says in his translation, the world is trying to squeeze you into its own mold. It's trying to make you something that you don't want to be, putting pressure on from the outside and making you to conform. The answer that God, God's Word gives to the confirmation of the world and being conformed to the world is the Word. Be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, and I think that's possible through God's Word, that you may prove that His will for you is good, acceptable, and perfect. Pastor said this morning that there's not too much original with many of us. In fact, someone said that even more strongly that there's nothing original with any of us. Uh, that the basic difference between God's mind and our mind is that He creates and we cannot. We always take a little bit of that which we know and add a little bit to it or subtract a little bit from it or change it just a little bit here and so we can always make a comparison with what we're doing that we call new with that which we've known before. But just to take something that's from nothing and make something, that's reserved for the mind of God. The, the Hebrews said that that was ex nihilo, that God created that way. We don't have quite that privilege. We just kind of stack on top of, of, the, of history and society and that which has gone on before. And so we come up with what we call new things. And you might want to argue that concept. But one of the things I do know about the human mind is, is it is impressionable. Jesus said, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And so what Jesus was saying is that what we give thought to, whether it's thoughts of the world and we're allowing the world to squeeze us into its mold, or whether we're being transformed as you think, so you will be. And so Jesus was telling us that the mind is very impressionable. If you're a computer hobbyist or by profession you deal with computers and you've heard that old equation G-I-G-O garbage in, garbage out. If you put garbage in a computer that's all you're going to get out of it. Same way with the human mind. Garbage in, garbage out. Transformation in, transformation out. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. The principle that I want to deal with tonight I'd really like to expand in our thinking is one that we dealt with last time 
out of the book of Psalms, where it says, Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? And there are other answers listed in verses 2 and 3, but the verse that we want to lift tonight is verse 4. He that sweareth to his own hurt and changes not. Now, we're probably more familiar with uh, the 24th chapter where it says, Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? And the answer we've heard preached from many times this text is, He that has clean hands and a pure heart. And we've heard many holiness sermons out of that particular text. But the verse tonight that we want to look at is, He that swears to his own hurt and changes not, because the same question is, is asked to get that answer. That is, who's going to get to heaven? Who's going to ascend to God's holy hill? And who shall dwell with him? And who shall be in his tabernacle? And remember, we introduced this concept last time by saying that you, I use my father as an example. We could use many of you as an example the same way. In the fact that he had had a business deal in selling his motor home and he thought everything was all up to date and there was nothing that needed to be repaired. And so it was that way that he sold it only to have the next day or two for the gentleman who bought the motor home from him call him up and say, hey, there's this wrong with it and this wrong with it and this wrong with it and, and on and on the list went. He said, what are you going to do about it? Dad said, well, have it fixed and I'll cover the bill, which ended up into several hundreds of dollars. And uh, then a couple of days later, Dad got another phone call and he said, oh, by the way, this is wrong and this is wrong and I'm going to have this replaced and I'm going to have that replaced. And Dad knew by his personal checking on it before, before he sold it that there was nothing wrong with those items, and so he figured out what the man was trying to do. He was really trying to take advantage of Dad to every means that he possibly could. And so rather than say, well, that's your problem, and I'm not going to send you any money regarding the motorhome whatsoever, Dad said, I will send you the money for the first bill. And when I questioned Dad and said, why did you do that? He said, because I gave him my word. And there's that scripture, he that swears to his own hurt and changes not, to him belongs the kingdom of heaven. Now I want us to look at what's involved in a vow. Whenever you give your word, what is involved in giving your word or making a vow? Ecclesiastes says this, when you vow a vow, unto God, defer not to pay it, for God has no pleasure in fools. Pay that which you have vowed. Better is it that you should not vow than you should make a vow and not pay. In other words, God says when it comes time to making a vow, then you need to make sure that you do exactly as you said, because it would be much better if you had not said anything at all than if you make a vow and not honor that particular vow. And Jesus, remember, commented on the, on the vows that people were making when he was on the earth. In fact, they would swear by earth, by heaven, by Jerusalem, and many, many other, hundreds of other things. But he said, swear not at all. Don't take any oaths at all. Because the earth is God's footstool. Because the heaven is his throne. And Jerusalem is the city of the great king. So let your yes be yes, and let your no be no. What Jesus is really saying is, when you say yes, it ought to mean yes. Your word ought to be good. 
In other words, your, your word ought to be as good as any vow that you take out of the Old Testament concept. And what he was reacting to was like, if they didn't tack on this little phrase at the end, then you couldn't believe what they were saying. If they didn't say, well, and I swear by Jerusalem this is true, then uh, it might not be true. So that's where Jesus said, when you say yes, I want it to be yes. And when you say no, I want it to be no. And although that's true about the vows in the Old Testament and the vows in the times of Christ, most of the times today we operate by that principle as Christians that Jesus gave us. That is the veracity of our word. When we say something, it needs to be good. There are times when we do take vows. There are not too many times, but there are times, and that's what we want to look at tonight. One of the times when we take a vow is marriage, where we still get an official vow, which goes something like this. And you can put your names in here if you've done that. I take you to be my wedded wife or husband, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, till death to us part. And we're really familiar with that, and sometimes if we're asked to quote that, you could have quoted all that I have so far. But the next part, according to God's holy ordinance, and thereto I pledge you my faith. Now that's a vow. In any sense of the word, that's regarded as the marriage vow. It's listed in, in our manual or any other particular type manual that you'd want to use, that that is regarded as a marriage vow. If we were to take tonight's message theme of confirmation or transformation, what would the world call this? Well, I don't think the world would call that a vow if we begin to look at some of the statistics that were in this week's paper. For example, on Monday, on the front page, there was an article entitled, Several Marriages Seen for Many of Today's Children. And it went on to say this, Many of today's children will live, one, with both parents for several years, two, with the mother after divorce, three, with the mother and a stepfather, four, alone during early adulthood, five, with a member of the opposite sex without marriage, six, with someone in marriage, seven, alone following divorce, eight, with someone a second in a second marriage, and nine, alone following death of a second spouse. It went on to say later on in the article that half of today's children will live with a single parent for some time. Nine out of ten children today will marry. One out of two will divorce. And one out of three will remarry. So what's the world's attitude regarding a marriage and the vows that are taken? Certainly not that which would, which would be regarded by the church. There's the vow that we take. In Tuesday's paper, there was an article entitled Divorce, and it said this, At least half of the adults will divorce at least once. People should regard divorce as a developmental passage in life akin to adolescence or middle age, a continuance of positive support by both parties. 
In the past, society promoted taking spouses and careers for life, but there's no longer need to feel guilty over ending a relationship that no longer meets the needs of a couple or an individual. In the last 15 years, the marriage rate has dropped, the divorce rate has doubled, the birth rate went from a record high to a record low, premarital sex became common, and half of all married women went to work outside the home. So in a marriage, what does God, how does God re regard the vow that is taken? It's probably best stated at the beginning of the ceremony. Dearly beloved, we are gathered together here in the sight of God and in the presence of these witnesses to join together this man and this woman in holy wedlock. I believe God regards it as holy wedlock and I believe God regards it as a sacred vow, that which we have vowed to another person before God. I want to talk also about the responsibility of authority and here's where I'd like for the teens to especially pay attention because in Numbers 30 there's also, it also talks about a vow. And it says this, that when a man makes a vow he's obligated to keep that vow that whatever he says that all that's come out of his mouth should be, should be taken care of. In other words, his word should be good. Then it goes on later on in the chapter, next few verses, says now if a young woman makes a vow and her father hears that vow and he says that vow is not going to take place and I disallow that, then that vow is disallowed. The young woman is no longer responsible. Likewise, if he hears his wife make a vow and he says, well, I'm going to disallow that, that doesn't count, then that vow is disallowed. But if the father hears his daughter make a vow and doesn't say anything about it, then that vow will stand. I think it's no coincidence that right in the beginning of a marriage ceremony we have these words. Who gives this woman to be married to this man? And then who makes that response? If there's a father in the home, then he makes that response and he either says, I do, or her mother and I do, or something to that effect. And at that time, he transfers his authority to someone else. And it's in that marriage ceremony, through the sacred vows that take place, that that transfer of authority happens. I talked to Bill about this concept and he said whenever his daughter got married there was a tremendous release. And some of you know what kind of releases that are financially and every other way. But he said as far as responsibility there was a tremendous release that took place and Carolyn and I have both noticed it, that, I, that, that Susan now is somebody else's responsibility. There's, I just know, there's a, that sense of knowing that. And do you notice that the Part of the father in the marriage ceremony, if he's giving consent to that, is to keep quiet. And if he does, then what he's really saying by his silence is that that vow is good. And I want to encourage teenagers, especially the gals here tonight, that this doesn't take place any other time. You're not under the authority of any other person until that marriage ceremony when you become under another proper sense of authority. Now, this responsibility of authority doesn't mean uh, inferiority or superiority. It's not saying one is superior to the other. It just says that God has made 
a certain way for us to be responsible through authority in, in the responsibility that he has given to us. So this doesn't happen in engagement. This happens in marriage where you give yourself to someone else. Now what happens in the breaking of a vow? What happens if this relationship gets in trouble? This vow that would hold two people together, what happens if that begins to get into trouble? I've had people say, well, I didn't know what I was doing when I got married. Or, and, and maybe a lot of us could say that. Or, uh, if I knew what I was getting into, I sure wouldn't have done that. Joshua chapter 9. We had this in our Sunday school lesson a few weeks ago. Joshua had learned some things being the spiritual leader of Israel, and he'd learned some things the hard way. But one of the things he had learned, he practiced in chapter 9. It was the Gibeonites who had just lived across the next hill, and they came over and they, and they uh, had some moldy old bread with them, and they, they put on the worst shoes that they could find, old clothes, and they wore those into camp, and they panted like they'd been walking for days, and they just collapsed when they got into camp. And they said, we have come a long, long way. And this bread was hot out of the oven when we started our journey. Now look at it. It's moldy old bread. We haven't eaten for days. We've just carried this moldy old bread. And look at our shoes. Do you believe that these were brand new when we left home? But your fame has spread so far about how you're such a terrorist and, and all this that, that we have come all this way. We've risked our life just to make a peace treaty with you. Well, the Israelites, they kind of puffed out their chest and said, oh, is that right? Boy, our, our fame's really spread that far? Yeah, and, and if, if you'll just sign a peace treaty with us so that you'll promise not to wipe us out. Well, they said that, that'd be pretty good. And the Scripture specifically said that they didn't check with God about this. They just went ahead and said, okay, we'll, we'll go ahead and sign a peace treaty. Well, about three days later, they were sending out these uh, scouting parties and they went over the next hill and there were the Gibeonites. And they came back into camp and they said, well, what, what are we going to do now with these people? And the Israelites almost said with one voice, we're going to go in and wipe them out. Joshua says, no, we're not. Because we have given our word and we have taken a vow that we would not kill them and we can't. And here's the reason why he said that we're not going to do that. Unless we experience the wrath of God. Now you say, well, they cheated them. <laughs> they tricked them. Yeah, but they still gave their word. Remember the principle? He that swears to his own hurt and changes not, to him belongs the kingdom of heaven. That's the reason why God says, be very, very careful if you make a vow. And teens, when you, when you get married, it's, uh, and, and people from SOS here tonight too, it's, it's the, uh, it's for the rest of your life as far as God is concerned in the vow that we take. And so that's the reason why you need to be very, very careful. Reading from the manual of the Church of the Nazarene, and we're going to be reading from some of the manual tonight because it says in the manual that certain portions of the manual are to be read every year in the church. And so we'll be doing some of that tonight, reading some of those portions. The marriage covenant is mutually binding so long as both shall live and may therefore not be dis dissolved at will. So that's the position. Someone asked, what's the position of the church of the Nazarene regarding marriage? There it is. 
that the marriage covenant is mutually binding so long as both shall live and may therefore not be dissolved at will. Let's look a little further at, at another development. What if, what if the vow is broken? We're going to consider two different situations here. One is if the partner is not married. First of all, I want to discuss that the picture in marriage of Scripture, since we're bound together by this vow that we've taken, the picture in Scripture, according to Ephesians and other places we could cite, marriage represents the relationship between Christ and his church. Now, how does Christ, if there's a separation, what does Christ, what's Christ's attitude towards that separation between he and any of his people from whom he might be separated? Christ seeks reconciliation. So if, if, you're, if the vow is broken and the partner is not remarried, my first suggestion is follow the example of Christ in seeking reconciliation. Now, Christ does that by looking at three particular things. First of all, confession has to take place. And repentance has to take place. And then also there must be a reacceptance or an acceptance of Christ again as the one that you want to be Lord of your life. Now, that's the ideal if there's a broken vow in a marriage. That's the ideal. And you say, well, that's easy with God because I know where he stands. You know, I know where, where God stands because I don't have to worry about him. I, I know that he wants us to get back together. The problem is if I'm out of fellowship with God and I've broken what, my promise to him, then I know that I'm at fault. And so I have to confess and repent and accept him again. But anytime you're talking about reconciliation, you're talking about two people. So what do you do under these set of circumstances where you have another person? Pastor said something in this morning's sermon that really got my attention along this line. I still believe that it's right for us to hold up the ideal in this regard. That we need, if at all possible, to seek reconciliation. And probably... What God would be saying in most of the cases that I have known and dealt with, what was the third point? If, if you are wrong, God says, grow. Your prayer should be, God, I want you to work a miracle because that's what it'll take to bring this relationship back together because of the, the vow that we've taken. And then God will work that miracle if you allow him to work on you and you do this in a framework of the sanctified life, and that's where, that's where it becomes hard. In other words, if we want God to do this kind of a thing for us, to bring a broken relationship back together, it'll mean the kind of commitment that we talk about in the sanctified life. I think Pastor this morning said it a lot better than I can when he, when he said, if you want something from God and it looks like not everything is working all together, maybe God wants to work on you first so then he can begin to work in your life. And I think that'll probably happen. If this is your situation or you know someone in that situation, I believe God's first assignment is to say, my will is, is reconciliation. We're going to share some more verses that will bear this out. And there might be some, some time weight on this. You might have to grow some. You might have to find out what genuine commitment is all about. But that's my will. 
another situation where you say, but in my situation, the vow is broken and the partner has remarried. So what's my situation? Now I'm going to read some verses of Scripture just to, to draw to our attention the gravity of the situation in breaking a vow, what Jesus had to say about this. Both in Mark 10 and in Matthew 5, Jesus said this. In Mark 10, first of all, Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another committeth adultery against her. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. And in Matthew 5, it's further clarified this way. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causes her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. Now that's the gravity of the situation. We're talking about the breaking of a vow causing an adulterous situation. Now I want to follow that up with an example. Because we not only deal with a God of justice, we also deal with a God of grace. And I want you to see the grace and mercy of God, how He operates through our sinfulness. Because we've all found that out. The example of David and Bathsheba. You see, David probably went a step further than any of you that I know. He actually had a life taken so he could marry someone else. But what, God, what did God do with David? Did he cast him out forever? No. He said David was a man after his own heart because he was able to repent and seek God again. And because of that, God had mercy on him. And he accepted David. What was the result of David's sin? He didn't lose his kingship. He didn't lose his right to get into heaven. I believe I'll see David in heaven. If I don't, I'll sure be surprised. What did it cost David? I think it did cost him something. What he really wanted to do for God more than anything else was to build God's house. He said, God, if I had any assignment in life that I would really like to fulfill, it would be to build your temple. And God said, David, start gathering up the stuff that you want for the temple. You can gather the wood and the stone and the cedars and gather it all together, but don't put one thing on another because that is reserved for someone else. Your son Solomon will build it. You can gather everything, but you see, there are some results of disobedience. In Manual, section 4015, it says this, that if someone is married and gets a divorce other than the grounds of adultery and remarries again, they can no longer be an elder in the church of the Nazarene. Now, in the church of the Nazarene, that's the highest office. It's not to receive a doctoral recognition. It's not to be the president of a college. It's not to be a general superintendent. The highest office in the church of the Nazarene is to be an elder. And that principle is followed in the church of the Nazarene. In other words, what we have talked about here is serious enough where that limits your spiritual potential at that point. But let me follow it up also with section 34.4 of the manual which says this. Through ignorance, sin, and human frailties, many in our society fall short of the divine ideal. 
We believe that Christ can redeem these persons even as he did the woman at Samaria's well. Where the scriptural ground for divorce did not exist and remarriage followed, the marriage partners upon genuine repentance of their sin are enjoined to seek the forgiving grace of God and his redemptive help in their marriage relationship. Such persons may be received into the membership of the church at such time as they are given evidence of their regeneration and an awareness of their understanding of the sanctity of the Christian marriage. Now that's grace. <laughs> that's going back to the saying that God did not cast out someone who had been involved in, in a very... You see, I guess the whole thrust of what I'm saying tonight is it's very serious when we give ourselves to a vow and then not fulfill that vow. And we need always to lift up the ideal and to show what the ideal is. And it's mainly for the youth service tonight that we went through many of these principles to say this is the ideal. That this is what God is striving for. But some of you are not in that ideal situation. And we know that life in all of its complexities and all of its emotions are not ideal. And life is not ideal. And therefore, we've dealt with various kinds of things that happen in the breaking of a vow. And aren't you glad that we have a forgiving, loving God of grace that helps us in our weaknesses and in our infirmities? There's one other question that I know some of you are asking tonight, and that's this. What happens if there's divine interruption of a vow? What if, what if, uh, for example, what if there's a lady here tonight and said, my, my husband died and I've not remarried, then who's my spiritual authority? You'll be very glad to know that God takes credit for that in Psalms 68. A father to the fatherless and a judge of the widows is God in his holy habitation. Then I'd like to say something else. That James says this, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this. You know, we, we use the term pure and the term holiness a lot of times synonymously in the New Testament. In other words, when we want a verse on holiness, we'll go to a verse that says something about purity because that's what we're talking about. Could we paraphrase James to read this way? Genuine holiness and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep yourself unspotted from the world. You know, as a church, it just struck me this week as I was working on this sermon that we're not organized to do this. Now, God takes credit for being the responsible for the authority. In fact, in the Old Testament, God said, if you don't, if you're not careful how you treat a widow and the fatherless, then your wife will be a widow. Pretty strong language from God. God says, that's my territory. And you be very, very careful how you tread on my territory because I'm responsible for them. In Isaiah, there's a verse that's right close to a verse that we also use as a holiness text. It's Isaiah, the first chapter, and verses 16 through 19. And, and it's verse 18 that you're familiar with, and it says this, Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, 
they shall be as wool. Though they be red like crimson, crimson, they shall be as wool. And we use that as a holiness text. You know what the verse just before that one is? Learn to do well. Seek judgment. Relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless. And plead for the widow. God puts dealing with widows and the fatherless right next to some texts that we hold as red-letter texts for our doctrine of holiness. Maybe it would not be incorrect to paraphrase James and say genuine holiness is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. Well, my apprehensions were correct. I'm only halfway through my sermon, and I'm out of time. So I do have some more slides, <laughs> and I do have some more principles, and I do have other places that I want to talk to you about the, where we use vows. Because some of the times I think when we, there's very few places that we use a vow, but sometimes we don't regard them as vows because uh, we want to say that this is like everything else that I, I've given my word to, but it's not quite a vow before the Lord like it really is. So the next time that we meet and we discuss the principles, it's going to be from a vow that we've taken that goes like this, and we won't get into the principles tonight because it'll be too lengthy. But it'll deal with church membership. And tonight you heard Pastor read from the manual this statement. Do you covenant to give yourselves to the fellowship and the work of God in connection with it as set forth in the general and special rules of the Church of the Nazarene? And the response was, I will. Now what did they pledge? And what did I pledge? That's what we want to talk about next time. What we have given our word to. A covenant that we have made with this church before the Lord that we would do certain things and not do certain other things. So what did we say? That will be our discussion for next time. I appreciate your listening tonight.